Parashat Pinchas. This class is sponsored by Aaron and Lillian Fuchs and Jason Fuchs in memory of Aaron's mother, Sarah Fuchs, Chaya Sora Basgittel, Alea Shalom, whose yard site is on the 26th of Tammuz. Um, we'll begin actually in Parshas Balak because uh, Parshas Pinchas starts off in the middle of an episode, in the middle of a story, which begins towards the end of Parshas Balak. It's uh, the first um, pasuk of Perik Chafhev, of chapter 25 in Bamidbar. Um, that is the first part of the story. It goes all the way through until um, Pasuk Tet, which ends the Parsha of Balak. And then we have Parshas Pinchas, which begins a kind of the next stage of the same episode, and that's what we're going to look at today. So let's look at the story. The story begins as follows. Vayeshev Yisrael Bashitim, Vayachel Amliznot et El Benot Moav. Israel, the Israelites settled in Shitim, and the people began to commit immoral acts with the daughters of the Moabites. So they, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods, to the gods of the Moabites, the Midianites. So here we have the first interaction, as it were, between the Israelites and another nation. It all goes horribly wrong, and immediately God gets angry with them. Um, Israel became attached to Baal Pa'or as a result of the fact that they were associated with Baal Pa'or through the daughters of Moab. They became attached to Baal Pa'or, who was the pagan god of the district. And God became very angry with the Israelites. The next pasuk, pasuk Dalet, God says to Moshe, Kach et kol God says to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang them, impale them before God. Neged uh, Hashemesh, facing the sun, the Yashov Charon Af Hashem Yisrael, and the flaring anger of God will be removed from Israel. So Moshe Rabbeinu gets a direct instruction. Take the leaders, do with them, execute them in this rather gruesome fashion, and uh, the anger of God will subside. So what does Moshe do? One would expect him to do exactly as God had instructed him. That's not what he does. He says to the judges of Israel, Each of you shall kill the men who became attached to Baal Pa'or. Instead of Moshe killing the heads of the nation, he asks the heads of the nation to kill the people who had actually sinned. We're going to get to that. Pasuk Vav, ishmi bnei Yisrael, bah. So there was a man from the children of Israel who came, vayakrev elechav, he drew near to his brothers, his brethren, et hamidyanit, the Midianite woman, le'enei Moshe, in front of Moses, le'enei kol adat b'nei Israel, in front of the entire congregation of the children of Israel, ve'hima bochim petach ohel mo'ed, and they were standing 
and crying at the door, at the entrance of the Ohel Mo'ed, the tent of meeting. Pasuk Zayin. Vayar Pinchas ben El Azar ben Haron HaKohen. By the way, at this stage, we don't know who that person is who's taken the Midianite woman. We don't know who she is either. All we know is that there is a man. Okay, we know that the word Ish always means somebody special, not just an ordinary person. The word Ish is used to describe somebody a little bit above the ordinary. Nevertheless, we're not told that person's name or the family they come from, the tribe they come from. We know nothing about that person. All we know is that he committed a lewd act in front of the nation. And no one did anything. They just stood there and cried. However, Vayar Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen. Pinchas, the son of Elazar, who was the son of Aaron the priest, saw what was going on. Vayakam mitoch And he arose, he stood up. Um, from among the congregation. He was there among these people who were all crying, but he stood up. He took a spear in his hand. And he came after this man of Israel, El Hakuba, um, into the chamber. El Kavata Al Israel. So he um, drove the Romach, the spear, through both of them. That's the Israelite man and the woman through her stomach, and the plague ceased from the children of Israel. By the way, this is the first time we're hearing about a plague. Clearly, um, the anger of God had resulted in a plague that was affecting the nation. We're not yet told, we're not yet informed that there were any casualties, but we are told that there was a plague. Pasuk Tet. Here we have it. Do you know how many people died as a result of this plague? 24,000 people. So what began as cavorting with the daughters of Moab, and developed into a relationship between the men who were doing so and the pagan god of the region, resulted in God instructing Moshe to kill the leadership. He changed that instruction to something else. But meanwhile, somebody significant did something very bad in front of all the nation who were gathered. They did nothing. Pinchas um, seems to have um, executed them, and then the Magefa, which we're told about now, uh, subsided, uh, and 24,000 people at this stage had died. Now we begin Parshat Pinchas. So that is the end section of Parshat Balak. Now we begin Parshat Pinchas. God now gives an instruction to Moses as follows, Pasuk Yudalev, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Haran HaKohen. This same Pinchas, who is the son of Elazar, by the way, Moshe's nephew, which makes Pinchas his great nephew, ben Aharon HaKohen, the son of Aaron the priest, Heshiv et chamati me'al b'nei Yisrael. Do you know what he achieved, this Pinchas? Um, he turned my anger away from the children of Israel. How did he do that? Bekan'o et kin'ati betocham. 
by zealously avenging me among them, and I did not destroy the Jewish nation in my, um, in my jealousy. Okay, because um, I was so angry, I was so hurt by what the children of Israel, the Israelites were doing, but nevertheless, because of what Pinchas did, I, um, I now have calmed down and everything is over. We're back to normal. Lachen emor. Therefore I say, I shall surely give him the covenant or my covenant of peace. Um, There's another um, prize awaiting Pinchas. He had not been included among the priests who were descended from Aaron. His family were not going to take the priesthood. They would just be ordinary Levites. But now as a result of this, not only does he have my covenant of peace, he's also him and his descendants after him will um, retain the covenant of priesthood. Do you know why? Um, Because he was zealous for his God and he atoned for the children of Israel. Pasuk Yudalad, V'shem Ish Yisrael. Oh, one second. Now we're getting it. This is the first time we're hearing the name. V'shem Ish Yisrael. The name of this Israelite man, Hamukeh, who was smitten, who was killed. Asheukaitamidyanit. Zimri ben Salu Nasi Beit Av Oni. Do you know who he was? He was slain with a Midianite woman. He was none other than Zimri ben Salu, the prince from the uh, house of the fathers of Shimon, the tribe of Shimon. Suddenly we get his name. And now we also get the name of the Midianite woman. So the Midianite woman's name who was slain together with Zimri. Her name was Cosby. She was the daughter of Tzur, who was a national leader of a paternal house in Midian. So here we have the story. There seem to be pieces here which don't quite make sense. We need to fill in the gaps. And we, know, we also need to understand the strange order of this story. But the most important question, the most puzzling question of all, which we're hopefully going to address uh, um, in the next, uh, well, less than an hour now, is why it is that Moshe did not obey a direct instruction, a directive from God um, in dealing with the matter. Okay, but first, before we do that, I want to look at some pesukim, very interesting pesukim, a little piece lost in Parshat Kitisa. When I say lost, I mean that we are so obsessed when we read Parshat Kitisa with the story of the Egel that sometimes the little details and aspects of Parshat Kitisa which should grab our attention and which in any other Parsha would grab our attention don't because we're dazzled by the dreadful story of the golden calf. Let's look at Parshat Shemot. This is chapter Lamadalad, Pasuk Yudbet, 34.12. He shamer lecha, guard yourself, pentichrot brit liyoshev haaret. 
um, see that you, it might happen when you move to the land, the land of Canaan. By the way, this was before the sin of the Miraglim. So this was an instruction that God was giving in the wake of the golden calf episode, um, concerned that this would be an endemic problem. That means that the Jewish nation hadn't quite used, got used to a non-pagan environment. You're going to go to the land of Canaan. You're going to strike a deal with the local inhabitants. The land which you're going to come there and you're going to mix among these people. You're going to strike a deal with them. And it's going to become a snare, a trap in your midst. What are we talking about? Make sure to demolish their altars, shatter their monuments, and cut down their sacred trees. Yes, you can be at peace with them, as long as any aspect of their pagan worship is destroyed and no longer exists. You'd see what you just did with the golden calf. You see how easy it is to you, for you to become trapped by the attraction of paganism. So when you get to the land, yes, I understand, says God, that you need to live at peace with the people who live there. But make sure that it doesn't come at the expense of my relationship with you. All aspects of pagan worship must be destroyed. Continues the pasuk. Ki lo le'el acher. Ki Hashem kana shemo kel kana hu. This is Moshe Rabbeinu speaking. For you shall not prostrate yourself before another God, because God, whose name is Jealous One, kana, kel kana, is a jealous God. And he's not going to tolerate you worshipping another God. Pen tichrot brit And it might come about that you strike a deal that you have a pact with the local population, and you will prostitute yourself um, after their gods, and you will bring sacrifices to their gods, um, and they will call you, um, um, and because they, they will invite you, and you will eat of their slaughtering, you will eat their korbanot. And you will take their daughters for your sons. And as a result of that relationship, the relationship that you have with the women folk, with the, with the girls, with the, with the women, uh, you will prostitute yourself. You will engage in an immoral relationship, as it were, with their gods. And um, you, uh, you, you will lead your sons to go astray after their gods. So you see presciently Moshe Rabbeinu echoing God's sentiment after the sin of the golden calf predicts exactly what it was that was going to happen 40 years later. In other words, you will engage in a relationship with the local population. By the way, this is the first time right now here in Parshat Balak at the end and the beginning of Parshat Pinchas, the first time that the Jews have been exposed to a local population. 
This is the first time they've had any kind of interaction with people who are not part of the Israelite nation. This is another nation, Moabites, Midianites. Suddenly they are interacting with them and their friendship leads to something more. Suddenly they're not only engaging with them in terms of friendship, they're beginning to cavort with the women folk. And as a result of that, they are drawn to worship the idols. You see that back then, 40 years earlier, the Jewish nation was warned that this would happen, and it is exactly what happened. But is it? Is it really identical? So I've expressed why it is identical, but in fact there are certain differences. I want to just explore those before we move on into the story. In Shmot, after the golden calf episode, the Torah warned the nation of the connection between the daughters of idolaters and the desire for idol worship. Moreover, the social context that appears here in Parshat Balak Pinchas, namely eating sacrifices together, appears there as well. However, so listen carefully. There are three significant differences between what we see in Parshat Kitisa and Shemot and what we see over here. The first is as follows. In Shemot, the first motive for the process is a political alliance with the inhabitants of the land. What is it that the Torah is warning us about? That such a pact will lead to marriage and then to idolatry. Here, on the other hand, the primary motive seems to have been the immorality with the daughters of Moab, not idol worship. So it didn't start with idol worship. It starts with, um, with the immorality, engaging with the women, and then it led to the idolatry. The second difference is that in Shemot, it is marriage, whereas in our Parsha, it is not marriage. It's immoral relationships. There's no marriage involved. I don't see any chasnas mentioned. There's no weddings mentioned in Parshat Balak at the end when describing this um, situation. In fact, the one piece of information that we have regarding any relationship is that there was an Ish Yisrael who engaged immorally in a lewd act in public with a Midianite woman. That's not a marriage. So whereas over there it spoke about marriage, here it's just, this, when the story actually happens, it's an immoral relationship. The third difference is that although the concept of prostitution is mentioned in both cases, both here and in Parshat Kitisa, it is in different contexts. This is so interesting. In Shemot, idol worship is referred to as prostitution, while here it is the immoral behavior that means between the men and the women, that is referred to as prostitution. Here, the idol worship is referred to as attachment. Do you remember what the, what the uh, word was that they used regarding the idol worship? I'm just looking for it here in the Pasuk. Hanitzmadim leva'al po'or. Nitzmad, do you know what nitzmad means? Connected, right? You're attached to Balpa'or. That's not the same word as Vizanu, which we saw in Parshat Kitisa. So here there's something different. Let me explain it. It would appear 
that the Torah failed to take into account the possibility of this particular danger. It's fascinating. That means after the episode of the golden calf, the episode of the golden calf had a certain purity to it, a certain innocence to it. And God was concerned that there's people who have spiritual yearning, who are not yet mature monotheists, they don't yet understand the concept of one God, and if they find themselves in a situation as moral people, in a situation where they are getting married to the local population, they've reached a political alliance with them, that they might find themselves also uh, engaging with the pagan gods of the district or the region where they live and they have um, reached that relationship with the local population. On that basis, very nice people, moral people, upstanding people, will have deserted the monotheism of Anochi Hashem Elokecha Asher Teisichom Eret Mitzrayim. So God warns them, you saw what happened with the golden calf. I'm warning you, make sure that doesn't happen when you go into the land of Canaan. The Torah warned against the dangers resulting from a legitimate political agreement. Creating political ties with neighboring nations could lead to idolatry through marriages. But here the nation did not fail as a result of a political arrangement. They failed as a result of something utterly unnecessary. Immoral behavior for no reason at all. There was no purpose in this. This was a bunch of people who misbehaved and one thing led to another and suddenly they were worshipping the pagan gods. Violating the covenant as a result of such behavior is not even the unwanted result of real political needs, but rather it stems from a basic moral failure and Israel's pursuit of their basest desires. That is the story here. It's not fine upstanding people making mistakes, oh I'm sorry. Suddenly they have descended into the depths of depravity. You can go from Hero to zero, even if you're the Jewish nation, being led by Moshe Rabbeinu, having received the Torah on Mount Sinai. That is the message of this story. You're not even those people who worship the golden calf. Even they were better than you. Even they knew better than to behave immorally. And the danger at that stage was that God thought perhaps in a political alliance with local Gentiles, you might come to worship the pagan gods. But actually when it happened, it was far, far worse. Okay, let's look at source number three. The names of the man and woman who are not mentioned earlier on in the story, why aren't they cited at the beginning of the story? Why do we see them only at the end, right at the end of the story? In Parshat Pinchas, after everything's already happened, Pinchas has already killed them, he's already got his covenant of peace and covenant of priesthood, now we say the names. Broadly speaking, the story is presented in chronological order. Nevertheless, without explanation, one piece of information is reserved for the end, the identities of the man and the woman who publicly engaged in immoral conduct. This information, should have been relayed to the reader 
as and when it happened in the story. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that belongs at the end of the story. Why is it at the end? So an obvious answer might be that the identity of the woman is relevant at the end to introduce the following verse, which instructs Moshe to go to war with the Midianites. Tzorah et hamidyanim. That's the next pasuk, which we didn't read earlier. It's the pasuk that continues the story, as it were, that Moshe Rabbeinu has to treat the Midianites as enemies. She, right, Cosby, was a Midianite. Therefore, her nation are now considered the enemy. She's the final pasuk of the story, right? She's pasuk tetvah, 15. We identify her as a Midianite. And now the next pasuk is Tzeror et Hamidyanim. And possibly for the same reason, the identity of the man is also given at the end, when her name is revealed, because it's an associated name. Her name comes at the end because the next pasuk is Tzeror et Hamidyanim. So the pasuk before has to be his name because you can't say her name without saying his name. In order, however, for this to be the case, one needs to assume that the identities of the man and woman are not necessary in order to understand the events of the story. So if it's true that the only reason she's mentioned at the end is because of the next pasuk, and he's only mentioned next to her because you can't mention her without mentioning him, what that means is that they are not relevant to the story. They're only relevant in terms of um, any battles or war with the Midianim afterwards. But is that really the case? We happy with that? I don't think so. I think that we need to explore that further. So this I've taken um, from a parish which I found online. I've adapted it from that parish. I, uh, I've modified it. It's in Hebrew. I'm going to read it and translate it. Um, you can check it out. It's source number four in your source sheet. Um, at the beginning, God instructed Moshe Rabbeinu to do something. Remember we mentioned that earlier? He instructed Moshe Rabbeinu to do something very specific. What was it? I'm going to read you the Pasuk. What did God instruct Moshe Rabbeinu to do? Take the leaders, execute them, everybody's going to see, and that way I'm going to calm down. Is that what Moshe Rabbeinu did? If you're looking at the Pasuk, I think that, it, you know, you don't have to be a great genius to work out what the Pasuk is telling Moshe Rabbeinu to do. Moshe Rabbeinu, do your duty, you're the leader, take the leadership and kill them. Actually, in the event, rather than Moshe Rabbeinu doing what it was that God had instructed him to do, he did something else entirely. What did he do? Let's look at the Pasuk. Vayomer Moshe el Shoftei Yisrael. Moshe said to the judges of Israel, Kill, each one of you should kill the men, I guess from your tribes, or that you are, uh, you 
are going to find, who have connected, who have attached themselves to the pagan god Baal Pa'or. Right? So instead of killing the leaders, he tells the leaders to kill the, the sinners. So, because it is impossible to contemplate that Moshe Rabbeinu would have deviated from what God had instructed him, if you look at the primary commentaries, commentators, on the psukim here, you will discover that what they try and do is fit in what actually happened with what God had instructed Moshe Rabbeinu to do. Kach lemashal. For example, Rashi. And you see the same thing in Ibn Ezra, and you see the same thing in the Rashbam. Here, this is Rashi. Kach et korashei ha'am. Take all the rashei ha'am, the leaders of the nation. What are you taking them for? Says Rashi, lishpot et ha'ovdim lipo'or. Don't take them to execute them. Take them so that they can be the judges um, for those or of those who have perpetrated this great sin. otam et ha'ovdim. And impale them or kill them who have done the sin. So what's so interesting is that the Pasuk's plain meaning, as we're going to see in a moment, is that you should kill the leaders, but Rashi changes the meaning by creating an, an ambiguity. He's almost, um, he is reinterpreting the Pasuk so that it can fit in with what actually happened, with what Moshe Rabbeinu did. Continues, Lema'ase. Actually, if we're going to be perfectly honest, Zuhi Machloket Tanaim Bemidrash. Actually, what we have here is a dispute, a debate between two of the rabbinic sages in the Midrash. It's in Bamidbar Rabbah. You can look it up, chapter 20, uh, number 23. Rav Yudan Amar, Rav Yudan, it's another name for Rabbi Yehuda. He says as follows Rashay Ha'am Tala al Shelo. Hang the heads of the nation. Why should you hang the leadership? Why should you execute the leadership? Says Rav Yud, a very good reason. He says because they had the responsibility to prevent those in their charge from doing this terrible deed. And they didn't do it. They are therefore guilty. And if they are guilty, they need to be killed. That's Rabbi Yehuda's opinion. That fits in with the actual plain meaning of the text. However, Rabbi Nehemia Amar, Rabbi Nehemia says, Don't hang, don't execute the heads, the leaders of the nation. God says to Moses, Take the leaders of the nation and they should um, act as judges for those who became attached and who worshipped this pagan god. So you see here that Rashi has decided to go along with the version that exonerates Moshe from having deviated from the word of God. However, the Midrash has two opinions. Rabbi Huda's opinion, which actually um, chimes much more 
much more closely with the meaning, the plain meaning of the text. And then you've got Ramana Chemi's opinion, which is the one that Rashi quotes, which exonerates Moshe. Okay. Lamrot If we're going to ignore the words of Rabbi Nehemiah and the fact that so many of the commentaries seem to lean in his direction, agree with what he says, The fact is that the plain meaning of the text fits much more closely with the opinion of Rabbi Yudan. Share Otam. The word otam in that pasuk, the word otam, it's an ambiguous word, but if you're going to interpret the word otam, the word otam means them. Who's the them? The them that you spoke about a moment ago. In other words, Rashi Ha'am, the leaders of the nation. The gam lashon lekicha, lakach, right? It says, it fits much more or much better with the idea of those who are going to be killed in that Pasuk. So if you look at the Pasuk, the Pasuk says, let me just find it here, the Pasuk says, um, take them. Why would you take them? Gather them, it should say, right? Why do you mean you take them? You take people, it's like you're arresting them. You arrest these people so that they can be killed, so that they can be executed. The word kach lends itself much more to Rabbi Yudan's uh, interpretation than it does to Rabbi Nehemiah's. Bepoel dvarim eile, bepoel, in actuality, dvarim eile shel Hashem alpi perush Rabbi Yudan lo hit batzu b'makom zeh, Moshe shalach, the fact is, let's be honest, let's see what happened. If Rabbi Yudan's interpretation, the Pasuk, is the correct interpretation, we have to deal with the um, reality of the situation, which is that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't listen to God's instruction. He was told, kill those people, and he didn't. He took those people and he told them to kill a bunch of other people. How is it that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't follow instructions? Those were your instructions, Moshe Rabbeinu. He didn't punish the leaders. He told the leaders to punish those who were the sinners. How can we explain the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu differentiated, deviated from the words of God? What gives him the right? to change what it is that is the solution to the problem of the nation going with the daughters of Moab and worshipping Palpa'or. Kenire, Moshe tnaged la'anishat Roshe ha'am she'lo chatu ba'atzmam. It would appear that Moshe Rabbeinu actually was opposed to punishing the leadership for a sin that they had not committed. They had not done anything wrong themselves. So what was the, what's the justification for executing the leadership? The justification is that they as leaders should have made sure that those um, who they were looking after, who they were leading, didn't behave in this immoral and um, rebellious fashion. 
So that's why they should be executed. It, it, it's clear, that's the justification that Rabbi Yudan gives for them to be killed. Moshe Rabbeinu clearly didn't agree with this justification. He doesn't feel that that is justified. His idea was, no, no, I'm not going to kill the leaders. They didn't do anything wrong. I'm going to kill the people who did something wrong. Moshe mitztayer kan ka'avra'am. Avraham bistom. Do you know where there's a similar episode in our Torah? Avraham Avinu. Remember what Avraham Avinu said. How can you kill all the people of Sodom if there's a bunch of innocent people there? You can't kill innocent people who haven't done anything wrong. Simply guilty by association. That doesn't make any sense. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm sorry, the leadership didn't do anything wrong. Yes, it's true that the people under their jurisdiction should have behaved in a better fashion, but that doesn't make them um, the, uh, the uh, guilty party. The guilty party is the guilty party. It's like saying that you should kill the police if a murder happens in their district. You can't kill the police. It's not their fault that there's a murderer. Of course, you know, you know it would be better if there was better policing and we could prevent murder. But if you don't prevent murder, it doesn't mean you kill the policeman or you kill the, you know, the local the local authority. That's not fair. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, the murderer is the murderer. Here the sinner is the sinner and the leaders are the leaders. Yes, they did something wrong and they have to do teshuva. No question about that. But we can't execute them. So he's, he is following or he's taking the lead from Avram Avinu when he prayed on behalf of Sodom. Collectivit. The idea of, co of collective punishment is not something that Abraham can stomach. He just feels that it is unjustified to kill innocent people as a result of sins that have been committed by others. And it would appear, And here's the key point. It would appear that Moshe Rabbeinu did not take um, God's directive as set in stone. It was a suggestion. This was one way of dealing with the problem as far as Moshe Rabbeinu was concerned, but there was another way and he felt that he had enough, enough authority, had autonomy in this situation to deal with it as he saw fit. This was one path to end the Magefa. This was one method to deal with it, but there were others. In any event, we know that the Torah, the concept of Jewish law, is not something which is in Shamayim. God doesn't instruct us whether or not we should or should not execute people. We have been given this autonomy. And Moshe Rabbeinu has that autonomy as the Jewish leader. What is the duty, the responsibility of Moshe Rabbeinu here? His responsibility is to make sure that the Magefa, the plague, is, uh, ceases. That is his entire responsibility. That is his focus. Nothing else. And if God comes up with a suggested solution, he can hear it, but he can say, actually, as the leader of the nation, 
I'm the one who has to make the decision. I bear the brunt of whatever decision is made. And therefore, my decision is not to kill the leadership, but to take care of the sinners themselves. Mishum kach Moshe he decided to take care of the situation in a way that he felt was more justified, more correct than the method which had been suggested. By the way, it meant that more people would die. How many leaders were there compared to how many um, sinners there were? But nevertheless, Moshe Rabbeinu felt that that was the correct solution to the problem. He felt that through the death of those sinners themselves, who were much greater in number than the leadership, but their, their execution was just, it was correct, it was the solution to this problem. Would result, as a result of their execution, there would not be, um, there would not be a magifa anymore, the plague would cease. So you see that Moshe Rabbeinu, you saw what God instructed in Pasuk Dalad, you see how Moshe Rabbeinu dealt with it, and you see that he's not criticized for it, it would appear that he had every right to behave as he did. In other words, God told him to do one thing, he did something else, but he had the autonomy to do so. How are we to understand this? The key point in this entire episode is found much later on, or later on in the story. Right at the end of the story, tucked away at the end, in Pasuk Yudalud and Pasuk Tetvav, we finally discover who it was that the perpetrators of this great public sin were. Do you know who it was? It was one of the leaders of the nation. One of them called Zimri. He was a leader from the tribe of Shimon. And he was one of those who engaged in a lewd act in public with one of the daughters of Benot Moav, a Midianit. Suddenly, we see what God meant, but we didn't know that at the beginning. Why? Because we were never told the name of the person. We were just told Ish Yisrael. So why does that information only come later? That, it would appear, is the key point. He, this leader of Israel, this Zimri, he had a key role. He had a key public role in the desecration of God's name, the public desecration of God's name in this episode. Actually, as it turns out, the leadership were not guilty because they hadn't taken care of those they were charged to look after. The leadership themselves were guilty of the crimes, of the sins. They were directly involved. They, in fact, had a direct role. 
they were, um, they were leading, as it were, by example, in terms of their engaging with the Benot Mo'av and worshipping Palpa'or. They were guilty. They were the ones who were leading the nation astray. The Rashi'a Am themselves, Zimri, from the tribe of Shimon, from the leadership. He was the one who did this terrible act with, with Cosby. Another point. Do you know how the Magifa finally ended? This is fascinating. What was Moshe told to do? He was told to impale the leadership, right? He was told to kill the leadership and then my anger will subside. How did the anger subside? <laughs> Look what it says in the Pasuk. Do you know what it was? Pinchas took a romach, he took the spear, and he impaled one of the leaders in the midst of a lewd act with a Midianite woman. And what happened then? The Magifa was over. Wow! Exactly what God had said is what happened at the end. As a result of these revelations, it's only right at the end that we discover what actually happened. And why it is that God gave that instruction. Suddenly we understand God's words, his instruction to Moshe, in an entirely different way. Because suddenly we appreciate what it was that God was telling Moshe. Moshe thought that the reason why he had to kill the leadership was because they were responsible for the acts of those they were leading. Actually, that wasn't it at all. They were perpetrating the acts. They were sinners themselves. And that's why they had to be killed. That's what God was saying. God knew what was going on. He knew that the leadership was also doing the wrong thing. And therefore, he instructed Moshe to kill the leaders. When the leaders would be killed, the people they were leading would also stop. And then the Magifa would be over. So we see here that there's a dissonance between Moshe's understanding of the situation and God's much broader knowledge of what was going on. And only when one of the leaders was killed did the Magifa end. So the question now is, I mean, we come back to the original question. We do understand why it is that the death of Zimri, together with Cosby, ended the Magifa. We understand why God gave the instruction that he gave. What we still don't understand is two things. First of all, why didn't Moshe Rabbeinu simply go along with what God had instructed him? Okay, you don't understand it. Okay, you've come up with your own methodology. But you're wrong. In the end, right? Right? Suddenly, at the end, you understand, in, in, the, um, in the Talmud you say, Igla Milsa Only with the piece of information at the end do we understand everything that went on before. We need that final piece of information to open up the entire story. Moshe, you should know better. God knows better, right? God knows what's going on. Why didn't you listen to him? That's number one. Number two, why are we only given the names at the end? We still don't understand that. We, only, we do understand 
as a result of the names what happened, but why are we only given the names at the end of the story? Madua imken Why are these details omitted from the beginning of the story and only given to us right at the end? It would appear that the Torah deliberately wants us to understand the opposition that Moshe had to what God had instructed him. Let's face it. Does Moshe Rabbeinu have the right to make his own decisions, or doesn't he? Now, if we're given this information at the beginning of the story, immediately it sounds like Moshe Rabbeinu is an impetuous, arrogant man who has no right to make his own decisions. And that's not what the Torah wants to convey. The Torah wants to convey that Moshe has every right to make his own decisions, even if they are mistaken. Because lo bashamayim he, the Torah isn't in heaven, the Torah is down here. And we have been given the right, the autonomy, to make decisions about how to conduct our Jewish lives. Whether it's civilly or whether it's religiously, we have that right. Moshe Rabbeinu had the right. And had this information been given to us at the beginning of the story, we would lose that sense of Moshe Rabbeinu having the right to do it. Moshe Rabbeinu was never criticized for not listening to God. Do you know why? Because he had every right not to listen to him. As it turned out, God was right. But that's not the point of the story. It's only as a result of us not knowing that the leadership were involved in the sin that we understand what Moshe did. Actually, there is a powerful lesson here. That it's not true to say that people need to be a part of collective punishment. It's not correct. If it was true that God had instructed him to kill the leadership but they'd done nothing wrong, actually, Moshe Rabbeinu was right not to kill them. This is actually the halakha. That you're not allowed to kill people if they're not directly involved in the sin. You can't kill somebody because you say, well, he bears responsibility for it. She bears responsibility for something that was done wrong. For example, we say, you don't kill parents if their children do something wrong, right? You can't, if, let's say somebody's son is a murderer. You can't say, well, it's the parents' fault, therefore they have to be executed. So Moshe Rabbeinu was actually right. How do we know that he was right? How do we know that Avraham Avinu was right? And that when he argued with God, he had every right to argue with God. As it turned out, there was no one in Sodom who would enable such an argument to, to uh, prevail. But Moshe Rabbeinu here is saying, actually, God, that's not the way we do things. We can't kill a leader simply because the people in their charge haven't behaved correctly. And he was right, and the Torah wanted to let us know that he was right, and that he had the right to make that decision. 
And why did he have the right to make that decision? Because he didn't know the facts. And the facts were that the leadership had sinned. And that fact is left out so that we should know that he was right in his assumption that we don't kill people as a collective punishment. Um, so that's why the implication at the beginning of the story is that the leadership was not involved in conducting or involving themselves in the sins. They weren't directly involved in the sin. They were, they were one step removed from the sinning. At that stage, Rabbi Yudan is right. It's only later on, at that stage, they're still being judged because they bear responsibility for the sinners who have sinned. As in order to convey this important lesson, the Torah is even willing to suggest somehow that at that early stage, God had not got it right. Obviously, once we get to the end of the story, we reach Pasuk Yudalad, we know that God did get it right. But at that early stage, it would appear to us that Moshe Rabbeinu was more right than God. Rather than kill the leadership, kill the sinner. Don't kill the leader, kill those who are guilty. And only at the end of the story is it revealed that God was correct and Moshe Rabbeinu had got it wrong. Um, we're going to spend the next few minutes on the, on the Nativot Shalom, a fantastic piece. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get through the whole thing, but we're going to at least attempt to get through as much of it as we can. It's source number five in your source sheet. Those listening online can download the source sheet. And believe me, this piece is worth it. The whole shear is worth this piece. Okay, Tzarich Biur, he begins. We need an explanation. Madua Chet Zimri Nechshav Lifgam Shel Klal Yisrael Vo'arer Charon Af Al Kol Yisrael Shinigzar Aleim Kliyach Has V'Shalom The implication of the Pasuk is that as a result of the sin of Zimri, the entire nation was going to be destroyed. Why would that be the case? It sounds exaggerated. It sounds too much. Okay, he's a very naughty boy, and he should have behaved himself, and he didn't, and he was killed, okay. And had he not been killed, what, the entire nation is going to be obliterated as a result of this one man's sin? It somehow appears overblown. We need to also understand the salvation, the fact that the Jewish nation was saved. Only one person was involved, Pinchas, and he saved the entire nation. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharon HaKohen. Shalidei kena'uto, hitzil et kol Yisrael, as a result of his zealousness, zealotry, whatever the word is, he managed to save the entire nation. Mashelom matzaot dugmat zeh, b'shum makom, there's no other instance in the entire Tanakh, entire Jewish history, where the act of one individual 
resulted in the salvation of the entire nation. One person did one act and everybody was saved. How does that make any sense, says the Nativot Shalom? We have this principle that anyone who is seen engaging in an immoral act with an Aramit, an Aramean woman, you're allowed to kill them on the spot. They don't have to go through any kind of judicial process in order to be executed. You can take out a gun and shoot them. There's absolutely no comparable um, instance in all the other sins that we have. Even the three cardinal sins. What are the three cardinal sins? Adultery. Adultery. Adul but not with a Gentile woman. Adultery is with a married woman, with all the things that are mentioned in Vayikra, in Leviticus, right? Um, murder, right? Killing somebody else. And Avodazara. And idolatry, those are the three cardinal sins. And if you see somebody worshipping an idol, can you take out a gun and shoot them? No, not allowed to. If you see somebody committing an act of adultery, not allowed to shoot them. If you see somebody murdering someone, not allowed to shoot them. You can't. You're not allowed. You can't just... That's, that's called vigilante justice. There's no such thing as vigilante justice in Jewish law, except in this one instance of Bo'el Aramit. Why is that? You can't have vigilante justice with the three cardinal sins. Why is it just in this particular instance that you have this concept of vigilante justice? So he answers as follows. What was the sin of Klal Israel here? This is absurd. I don't know if you can use the word about a Dvar Torah. I think it's delicious. Okay? I think that what the Nitivot Shalom says here is stupendous. What was the sin of Klal Yisrael? First of all, how many people do you think were engaged in immoral acts with the daughters of Moab? I mean, at the maximum, probably 24,000, right? Uh, could be. I mean, it could also be that there were innocent people killed. We don't know. It's not, no number is ever mentioned. The only person who's ever mentioned as having done something really bad was Zimri, that we know of as, as a matter of fact. Okay? But let's say there were many more. It certainly wasn't the entire nation. What did God say? He was going to destroy the entire nation. Well, what did they do wrong? How many people are in the nation? Well, we know there's at least 603,550 males between the ages of 20 and 60. So there's a lot of people, right? How come they're all guilty? What did they do wrong? Do you know what he says? Actually, their sin was that they didn't appreciate the gravity of sin. That was their sin. We know from the fundamentals of repentance, of Teshuvah, more than the actual sin that a Jew sins when, you know, he falls under the influence of his inclination. 
שמבחינת מסוימת, הרי הוא כאנוס, the truth is, when you fall under your inclination, let's say, you're really, really hungry, and you see some non-kosher food, and you eat it. Why are you, why are you eating it? Because you're really hungry, and you think, ah, who cares about kosher food, right? I'm so hungry, I need to eat. That's what you're thinking. Or when, you know, you really, you know, as kids, I remember my friends who want to watch uh, soccer on Shabbat, right? Should we turn on the TV? Shouldn't we turn on the TV, right? That's a, so the person who turns on the TV in that situation, he can't hold himself back. Right? I need to watch the soccer game. I need to watch it. I'm going to turn the TV on on Shabbat. So is that really a deliberate act? Or have you somehow failed because you're too weak in that situation? Of course, that's what it is. You're like an anus. She'en adam over avera, ele imkein, nichnesa boruach shtut. Why does somebody do an avera? Because in his mind, he somehow rationalized it. Ah, it's okay, I'm only going to do it once. I'd never usually do it. I'm never going to do it again, right? Somehow you rationalize it. At that particular moment, you did a stupid thing. You made a mistake. You allowed yourself the liberty of doing something wrong. You know what the real test of a person's integrity, spiritual integrity is? Not when they do the sin, but when they do teshuva and they don't do it properly. Because at that stage, he doesn't realize how dreadful the sin was. At that stage, you're no longer under the influence of the moment. At that stage, when you're doing teshuva, it should, it should dawn on you how terrible it was that you sinned. If you don't realize the gravity of sin at the moment when you're meant to be doing teshuva, that's actually much worse than the sin itself. Right? At that moment, you're no longer under the influence that you were when you were sinning, right? You return to yourself. You're a rational human being again. You're back to where you need to be. If at that moment you don't recognize the gravity of sin, that's bad news. That means that that sin of not recognizing the sin is actually worse than committing the sin itself. At that moment, when he should recognize how terrible it was that he sinned, he doesn't, that is worse than the sin itself. You should know, it says, this concept, there is nothing more hateful to God than a person who is, engages in a lewd act with an Aramit, an Aramean woman. Sheinyano Aldvar Chayal Haover Al Mitzvata Melech Lefi Erech Avera. He compares it to a soldier in the king's army. And he is given the secret weapon that this army possesses. And what does he do with it? He sells it to the highest bidder of the opposing forces. Right? He's a traitor. You've been given a neshama. You've been given a soul. You've been given a special spark of God. And what do you do with that spark of God? You relinquish it to the 
you're a traitor by pretending that you're not part of the nation of God and you engage with an Aramean woman. You are a boged. You are a traitor. You're disloyal to your king, to your God at that moment. That is why it's so hated. So in a, in a sense, how bad is that? What's, the, what's, the, what's so terrible about it? You haven't done something so wrong, you might think, but there's nothing worse than that. The act itself is seemingly, it's not murder. You didn't murder anybody. But they're going to use, by the way, they're going to use your codes and they're going to murder people. Right? They're going to use your secret weapon and people are going to die. The moment of sale, no big deal. Everyone's smiling, they're shaking hands, you get money, they get what they want. No big deal. That's what it means to be a Bo'el Aramit. At the moment of the act, you can say to what's the big deal? I didn't do something so wrong. But you have degraded your status as a child of God, as a soldier of the king. It's a treacherous act. The worst thing that you can do, you give over your holy soul to the powers, as it were, that are anti-God. And now we can understand the gravity of what it is that the Jewish nation did in terms of the Maase Zimri, when they saw this act, this sin that was being done by a prince of Israel, a leader, every single one of them should loudly protest and do everything in their power to stop it. This this desecration of everything that they stood for, a leader betraying God in front of everyone. That's what happened. They didn't realize how terrible it was. I mean, it was sad and they were sad and they wanted it to be over. But somehow they didn't get it. They didn't understand how dreadful, how terrible this situation was. That's what it means when it says in Chazal that they somehow forgot the law that vigilante justice applies to someone who engages with an Aramean woman. Not that they forgot the halacha. Somehow they forgot how terrible such a sin is. That there's nothing more disgusting, nothing more hateful, nothing that God hates more than this betrayal. And the lack of understanding, the lack of appreciation of the gravity of this terrible sin. All of them were guilty of it. And that is their sin. The entire nation was in danger of obliteration as a result of that sin. Not because they engaged with the daughters of Moab. But the fact that they didn't really get how terrible it was, what uh, the, the sin that Zimri had done, that in and of itself was the sin that required uh, the punishment. The im ki 
And even if they did understand the chet, they understood the sin. They understood that a sin was being committed. They were crying, as if we saw in the Pesukim, they were crying at the entrance of the Ohel Moed. They were very upset about it, but somehow not upset enough. It didn't match up to the gravity of the crime. Okay, and he says something very, very interesting, and we're going to end with this. The Koshnitz and Magid says a beautiful thing. You know, we have halacha. The halacha says, this is in Ilchot Kashrut. You know about it, right? That if you have something which you want to make kosher, and it's only ever used for something cold, how do you kosher it? In cold. I'll give you an example. You want to, um, you want to make glass kosher. Okay, what do you do with glass? You put it into cold water, right? And you leave it there overnight, and then you change the water, and you change the water again over three days, and then it's kosher. You don't have to heat it up. What if something is used in, uh, you use it with hot? Then you have, to, you have to boil it up, right? So if something is a pot, for example, you want, a, you want or something metal, which is used with hot food, how do you kosher it? You, you dip it into something very hot. What about something is used with fire? Something's actually, um, the way that you use it is that it's used with fire. The only way to make it kosher is to burn it with fire, right? The, the method of kashering that item is with fire. Koshnitz and Magid said the same is with teshuva. There are various that you do, like cold. Like, you're not so into it. You just do it because you did it, and it wasn't a big deal. You just did it, and you feel bad afterwards. So the teshuva only has to be at the level of cold. You want to kosher yourself? You don't have to go crazy. I'm very sorry I did it. I'm never going to do it again. That's it. But what, what about something which you did with passion? In the heat of the moment. The heat of the moment. You did something with great passion. The only way to do teshuva in that situation is to do it with great passion. Right? And the more passionately involved, the more you are invested in the Avera, the more you need to be invested in the Teshuvah. Ah, so what happened with Zimri? What happened with Zimri? Zimri was involved in a passionate engagement with a Midianite woman. What were they doing? They're crying at the entrance of the tent. That's not enough. You need passion to undo the passion. Where is the teshuva? Do you know what he did? This is a beautiful piece here from the Nesivas Shalom. He says he took a romach. What's a romach? A romach is a spear, but it's also romach, reish memchet, it's 248. It's the evarim of the body. He took every single aspect of his physical body and invested it into undoing the sin of Zimri and Cosby. The passion involved. Pinchas was a Kana'i. What does that mean? That he was as passionate in trying to undo the sin of Zimri as Zimri was in committing the sin in the first place. The only way that the sin could be undone was through the passion of Pinchas. That is why he was given the Brit Shalom. 
That is why he was given the gift of kuhuna. He understood better than Moshe, better than his own father, better than all the people who were standing there in front of the Ohel Moed, who were crying, who were very upset about the sin, but somehow they didn't recognize that that wasn't enough. It's not enough to be upset. You need to invest passion in trying to undo. How upset are we when we see somebody sinning? That's an interesting question. We see somebody being Mechalal Shabbos. We see somebody, I'm going to say it, marrying out. How upset are we? Or do we shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the world. How passionate are we? Does it hurt us? Do we really want to change it? Are we willing to go to the, the extra mile to make sure that that Shabbat is observed? To make sure that the person doesn't marry out? All the many things that we see around us in terms of people sinning. Or do we simply stand by? And by the way, it can be in every part of it. It can be people who engage in petty disputes and arguments with their friends. That's equally sinful. It can be people who are nasty and, you know, or disloyal. Any type of bain adam lechavero. It can be people who, who find every reason to criticize Israel, Jewish people. How passionate are we in trying to uh, to change their criticism or defend Israel. What are we doing? You need to be a Pinchas. The more passionate people are about whatever it is that they say, and it's wrong, the more passionate you need to be to undo it. You can't simply stand by. You have to be a Pinchas. You have to take Ramach um, Evarim, the 248 Parts of your body, as it were, symbolically, that's the number that's used to describe the parts of the body. And you need to fully invest every ounce of energy from each aspect of yourself to undo whatever damage has been done by those who are engaged in sin. We'll leave it here for today.